cultures of assembly. Cultures of Assembly is a project for spaces of agonism and democracies in the making. It is generated by friction, negotiation and conflict, where the public sphere opens to new social and political practices. We engage in the discourse and spatial politics in the physical and the non-physical public spheres. We are Francel Kane, Maria Maric, Markus Missen, and Cesar Reyes. Today we are focusing on medium design with Keller Easterling. Episode number seven. So your latest book uh, is called Medium Design, and I was really wondering if you could uh, explain to us and the audience what constitutes the medium. Well, I'm in dialogue with um, I'm I'm in dialogue with media theorists by using this term, um, and media theorists who are thinking about elemental media, not media as um, um, limited by communication media, um, but those who would be going back to think about the root medius meaning middle or milieu so i'm writing about the design of the middle um the design of the matrix by saying um, medium design I'm, i'm curious just to somehow complement the, the the question keller uh, what really happens between the buildings i mean what is actually this mesh of relationships that makes a city what it is uh, We're wondering how can designers read, understand, describe, or interact with such relationships. Well, I'm I'm trying to speak to a broad audience to say, think for a minute about the ways that things are interacting with each other. Um, even like this coffee cup that I'm holding has a little handle here so that my finger will go into it. The chair I'm sitting on responds to where my knee bends, and altogether it goes underneath this table. Um, so even static objects are bristling with performance. They are doing something. They are um, offering to each other some kind of affordance or capacity or potential. And so I'm trying to, again, speak to anyone And as if to say, you know, with half-closed eyes, see potentials in space. This street that I'm on, if it had a hundred doors, would have a different potential than if it had one door. Um, or, uh, you know, I, at the beginning of the book, I give another example of just like looking into your fridge and seeing all the potentials of the things that are there, their expiration dates, their possibilities for combination, um, almost seeing the world like a periodic table of possible things that can combine and interact, uh, be, be reagents with each other. Um, so that's the kind of uh, perspective I'm, I'm trying to foster throughout the book is to see not just objects or lexical expressions, but um, an interplay between objects. What, what is, why is there a dependence from on one thing and another? Or why is one thing a function of another thing? Um, what are chain reactions, multipliers, um, and so on in this matrix? And uh, from your point of view, do you think is the architectural profession still able to see these potentials that you're describing? Well, I, I would I would hope so. In some ways, it's kind of uh, obvious. Uh, like in extra statecraft, I gave another kind of example. Like, um, you know, you can look at buildings and see shapes and outlines and then just see like air between them. Or you can see something like uh, 
a relationship and a multiplier. Like, for instance, the relationship between the elevator and the structural steel frame became a kind of germ that changed the crust of the earth in less than 100 years um, or about 100 years. So that's a huge thing. It doesn't, um, you can't identify it in terms of the profile of a single building, but it is building technology and it is just like ran like wildfire across across the planet. That's a relationship, uh, an interdependent relationship and a multiplier. And in your latest book, you also argue that design tools are often inadequate to address contemporary questions of power. Um, and I think it's incredibly interesting that you uh, somehow call for complications rather than solutions. So I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate a little bit on this notion of the complication right um i am arguing that you know it's a culture that longs for singular evils and singular solutions um and that that's a very dangerous position um because there's a spectrum of dangers and evils um you know not only capitalism But capitalism and whiteness and xenophobia and uh, and uh, um, fascism and femicide and caste and and on and on and on, um, it's very dangerous to think of just a single target. Um, and some of the power that I am identifying are that I've been looking at even since extra statecraft and enduring innocence are forms of power that manage to be bulletproof. You know, like the book Enduring Innocence, that was a double entendre. It's enduring innocence and enduring innocence. You know, their claims of being intact, of being Teflon, um, of being able to produce multiple lies and wriggle out of it. Um, so the superbug kind of comes back again, or the, the the bulletproof power comes back again in this book, and I'm trying to look at that kind of power. You know, you you could easily now embody the superbug in a kind of Trumpian Bolsonaro, Kim, BB, Putin kind of character if you wanted to, but you could also look at the kind of free zones and other um, political political spaces that I've tried to expose and see this bulletproof power. And I've, I've been trying to say that it's, it, it makes it too easy on the superbugs to just declare one enemy. Um, cause then they'll run rings around that. Um, and that it's better to be aware of, um, yeah, a, a spectrum of dangers and, and evils and a way of um, almost overwhelming those superbugs, keeping them disoriented um, by working on multiple fronts. It's very interesting, um, Keller, how this binarism, let's say, private versus public, left, right, female, male, has been the dominant narrative in our cultural system. Uh, why do you think we kept installed in this binarism that, uh, do you think that is there a possibility to go beyond it? Uh, and if it's a possibility, why this is not occurring? Well, I come from the left and everything I'm doing is, is trying to is arguing from a position on the left and trying to persuade towards the left. Um, and yet, uh, in the same way that I'm not looking for singular solutions or singular evils, I, I, I don't know if it's always the wisest thing to make one's activism into just a binary fight again a sort of like the, there's a there's multiple things to work against um and 
that's a stronger position, it seems to me. So just making this kind of Manichaean struggle between left and right sometimes um, may not have enough information in it. Um, there's more information in being able to see the spectrum um, and also to be able to see who you might be able to persuade within that spectrum, uh, e even those people who uh, might identify as being on the right. Um, it seems like a stronger activist position to be able to see that whole uh, spread. Um, uh, of course, if, if the purists at that moment will try to take it back to a Manichaean struggle, try to take it back to a binary. Uh, for them, uh, that kind of position is, uh, uh, you know, like, well, yeah, it was a betrayal uh, of the left. Um, but that, I, that is, I think, um, a holdover of some um, enlightenment, modern enlightenment habits of mind that I'm also trying to expose. It's a mistaking of part for whole. Um, it's sort of, it's a category mistake, actually. You know, it's sort of seeing the whole <clears throat> in a part. So in order to uh, somehow uh, provide alternative to this power of the super box, as you mentioned, uh, do you think it would be a wise strategy, Keller, to deal with this series of multiple evils? I will elaborate a little bit on this. I remember telling this story, this anecdote to Marcus about talking with a friend that was shocked because Brexit won. Uh, and she told me, I'm, I'm shocked because I don't know any person who voted yes. And for me, that was kind of a revelatory moment saying that maybe that's the problem. We don't know who voted yes. We don't engage with this series of multiple, uh, let's say, uh, people that think multiple evils and that somehow follow them. And maybe that should be our next task, engage uh, uh, with different uh, levels of evil and engage in a very authentic and sincere way. I mean, even uh, knowing each other, uh, falling in love with each other, fight with each other. And um, I think with this attitude, somehow there will be a possibility uh, against this false binarism that we have been confronted to. I don't know what do you think about it. It was a kind of, of reflection after this really shocking message that we don't know the other. Yes, um, the superbugs also make, or also conflating and confusing left-right ideologies. So they're they're like they're mixing it up, sw switching sides all the time, uh, switching between what what would have been a kind of. Um, uh, but they're borrowing and confusing um, the ideologies of both sides in order to garner loyalties. So it's possible, you know, like, for instance, in the United States, Trump seemed to be attracting the working man um, who, you know, used to be the, someone who the left could attract. Uh, so it, and all the same reasons why the left should be able to attract and persuade that, that person. Um, so it's, uh, you know, Trump has just managed to insincerely concoct a kind of rhetoric to attract them without providing policies that actually support them. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it's sturdier, safer, um, more productive to try to remain, you know, a principled person on the left, but still find those messages that that speak to anyone and get over false divisions. Which is essentially the, I mean, uh, let's say one of the um, kind of guiding principles of Shantamu's leftist populism, this kind of notion of, I mean, how do we address that audience from a different point of view? It's uh, it's incredibly interesting question, I think, and also, let's say, 
connecting to you uh, to what you're saying in uh, your latest book i was wondering since you're talking about the super bucks which maybe would also be interesting if you can explain to the audience a little bit um, more what exactly you mean uh, by that term but uh, how do you actually fight those super bucks in inverted commas without nourishing them you think yeah they uh, i mean they um they often you know they don't have consistent content They don't have a consistent message. They have a confused message that's filled with lies. Um, but lies are good ways of keeping attention. And I've long been sort of looking at this the way that, um, you know, a superbug knows how to tell a lie, how to tell a good lie. Uh, and it doesn't have anything to do with its distance from the truth. It has to do with how how well it will bounce in culture, like like the lie that, Uh, Obama wasn't born in the United States, that Trump started was a really good lie because it it was easy to refute. So it got repeated twice as often by people on the right and then also by people on the left. He said, oh, no, no, he what? Can you see? You know, like, so that's a, that's an excellent lie. They know they're not really, the superbugs aren't really focused on content. They're focused on how much that whatever they're saying will bounce around in culture. And they move past content to work on our temperament and our disposition. Our They work on the kinds of, um, you know, potentials we were talking about before, uh, the kind of invisible potentials in the room, the temperament uh, and so on. And they they know that if they can keep everybody fighting they can they can do whatever they want to with you um so it's really tricky to not nourish their fight um sometimes starve them of the fight they're craving you know and disorient them um You know, so the idea that we were talking about before about kind of working on multiple fronts, working in ways that are not predictable, creating dissensus. And that's not to say that one doesn't also sometimes come up, come come out with a fight, come out with a normal binary, you know, opposition, stand in the street and give it a name. Of course you do that. You know, <clears throat> activism is is fighting, rioting, looting, sabotaging, marching, sanctioning, divesting, all those things, it often involves a binary fight. But in addition to those skills, I've long been trying to figure out how space might help us expand the repertoire of activism to disorient the superbug, um, to confuse them. And if I may ask, what's your position regarding social media in this regard? Um, I uh, am completely against social media. I don't understand the the purpose of it. It distresses me to see my students uh, involved in it. Um, it's killing them. Um, it's, uh, as you probably have read this um Harvard Kennedy Center um, researcher who's been studying the effectiveness of, of activism over recent years. And I mean, she's theorizing that social media also drains, surprisingly, drains away some energy from activist uh, protest and demonstration. Um, but I, I just don't understand um, why our institutions are still on Twitter, why my students are on Twitter, um, and was just yesterday saying, um, well, you know, uh, the billionaires in some ways make it really convenient for us because they accumulate so much wealth that they make a really easy target. And, uh, you know, if, all of my students just like clicked off of Twitter, like with a keystroke, um, they could bankrupt this guy, you know, like uh, that would be, that would be a kind of really interesting form, a wake up. Uh, that would be a form, a really interesting form of disorienting, um, 
the census. So interesting, uh, even more after the recent events of Elon Musk and the Twitter affair. Uh, Keller, in your book, Extra Statecraft, uh, the power of infrastructure, you mentioned an unorthodox set of techniques that are maybe less heroic, but that can be more effective. I'm talking about gossip, rumor, gift-giving, mimicry, comedy, uh, distraction. Uh, how can you think these uh, techniques can end up in richer forms of urbanity? Well, that, that's why I wrote Medium Design, um, uh, because uh, that, that sort of list that was an extra statecraft was not enough. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's anecdotal in a way. Um, and what I was trying to show in Medium Design <clears throat> with a series of case studies, none of which are sufficient and none of which I'm saying are like the answer or something like that. In fact, the exact opposite. I'm just trying to give enough examples to rehearse a, ha a habit of mind in design that um, uh, creates form in a different way. Um, so it creates form as interdependence. So like one of the examples is thinking about, I mean, you just mentioned Elon Musk, you know, but um, is thinking about um, technology changes in um, <clears throat> transportation, whether it's electric cars or automated vehicles or something like that. Um, and our kind of modern enlightenment mind says the, the way to change something is to, is to upgrade to the next technology um, and that will fix it. Um, but what I'm trying to say in medium design is that it's not the new technology that's the innovation, it's the relationship between income, existing and emergent technologies. That's the innovation. It's the, it's the, it's the wiring, the, the, the recipe for the mixture of, the chemistry of, the interplay between those um, technologies that is, that is the innovation. Um, uh, so I was saying like, what's, what's, In what would be innovative is figuring out techniques for switching between mass transit and automated or electric vehicles that are in fleets of cars. And thinking about that does change a lot. It changes. Um, um, it actually does get cars off the road, reduce emissions, reduce vehicle miles traveled, all those things. Um, So it is the switch between those things that is the innovation, not the machine, uh, not the new technology. Um, so that's one example. Um, but the book tried to look at several different kinds of examples like that. In some cases, it's an interplay of community. It's trying to look at failed capital control of properties and neighborhoods. And when they fail, when they fall off the capitalist ledger, putting them in new combinations in making that an opportunity for community economies, for mutualism, um, for a kind of interplay in neighborhood that um, is uh, form, you know, forms of, of mutualism that Um, abolitionists, black feminists, indigenous, uh, other thinkers, uh, feminists, uh, economists have long been talking about. So that's another example. Anyway, two, those are two examples of big kind of, of, of a family of examples, let's say. Maybe in this context and also in the context of what is uh, usually referred to as the smart city or smart city kind of development. I was wondering whether you think that, uh, or maybe more generally speaking, what is the kind of technofix optimism and to which extent you think about technofix uh, as something dangerous? Yeah, it, um, it is uh, a kind of throwback. It is part of that same 
conservative, modern enlightenment mind um, that thinks that the, it's the next technology, which is the uh, the save the redemptive thing. Um, um, and it's, it's, it doesn't even matter how many times that's proven to be wrong. Um, it, it still is, is uh, uh, strangely persuasive. Uh, um, I see it now um, among some of my most brilliant students and colleagues um, uh, where there is a desire, where there's a sense that, oh, well, blockchain will now solve everything, you know, like because it's a new technology. And uh, um, when blockchain is putting many things back into an abstraction, like so many of the other financial abstractions that are capable of so much automatic harm, um, by being kind of instant multipliers uh, uh, that run through uh, these systems and kind of invisibly erase people and destroy people. Um, so I've been trying to put forward information systems that are heavy information systems, that are lumpy information systems. I mean, long been saying that as Bateson, Gregory Bateson said, a, a man, a tree, and an axe is an information network. Uh, so the information that is in, um, well, like we were talking before, this cup, this chair, this table, they are in an interplay. That is information. Um, and so also trying to kind of slow down the automatic harm of abstractions, financial abstractions and other abstractions to um, kind of put between our hands a physical spatial information system that is more, um, that's heavier or, or also more opaque that is, can't be, you know, the, the world wants the world kind of rewards those moments when everything is homogenized and pure and pasteurized and Turing complete, um, parsed with an elementary particle, so on. But this, I'm trying to say that the moment of innovation is the moment where the mix gets lumpy, <laughs> like where it, things curdle. Um, that's the moment of innovation. So we can say that we're in a mad kind of moment, very propitious for doing innovation. And I'm wondering uh, what the capacities of us architects and technicians can do over there. I remember reading in, in your organization space, uh, something that really shocked me, uh, Keller saying that we architects are good, let's say, dealing with notions of uh, static concepts, but are really lacking vocabulary to deal with incremental change. And I think this is some of the abilities that we are yet to acquire. And I wonder that this is a very propitious moment to engage in that task. What do you think about it? Thank you for asking a thoughtful question. It's, uh, all of your questions are so interesting and thoughtful. Well, I wonder in, I mean, we all work in schools of design of one sort or another. And um, I wonder if, you know, we really have not given our students a chance to rehearse what this kind of making would be like and how it would have other pleasures and seductions that uh, beyond the sort of pleasure of like making a shape and dusting off your hands and taking a picture of it and saying it's finished, um, the kinds of form that are unfolding um, that have a temporal dimension of some kind, uh, that are a set of interplays and interdependencies which might change over time or projects that take 10 years. Um, I, I, maybe we haven't spent enough time to talk about what that would be like or what it would be like to make a, a career, a lifetime, you know, working on those kinds of things as opposed to, I mean, it's, 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 it's not too hard to make it seem attractive, uh, 
as opposed to the kind of indentured servitude in a in a hierarchy of of corporate architecture offices that don't even pay you a living wage. I mean that it's architecture um, and our spatial skills. I'm trying to advocate to my students that they not work within the profession, um, that they find uh, other kinds of partnerships and coalitions that are more sustaining um, of what they want to do. And also, I mean, potentially more um, sustaining even just of their their lives. I think this is somehow revealing because we have also uh, kind of been insisting uh, uh, this semester uh, with uh, our group of students about know how to read this under terminancy and also try to grasp uh, the intangibles that uh, are often left out of uh, architecture education because we are really used to, let's say, deal with the final product, the final design. Uh, the, the final object and forget uh, all the richness that are in between them. So I really appreciate this comment. I, I think for all of us, it's a task of trying to find in this uh, new vocabulary and as a kind of translators, no? trying to bring this, uh, let's say, kind of activist uh, attitude and try to understand the complexity of this matrix that it's there. We have been not seen so far. Yes, and um, this possibility of these partnerships and coalitions, that's one thing which I'm working on within a university to to start students in that, put them in a kind of, I teach a, like a university-wide lecture course, which is supposed to be kind of mixing chamber of all the disciplines and where um, it's not just that architects need to go out and find another discipline. It's that those other disciplines also need to understand spatial variables and spatial variables need to have more authority in uh, global decision-making and, um, and, and in a broader culture, there needs to be, I think, um, more fluency in spatial thinking. Um, you know, I, I think I should know something about science and psychology and um, math and economics and all those things, but I, I don't know if a broader culture feels that they should understand something about space, urban space. Um, and so I'm actually trying to speak to a broad audience about this, uh, to build this kind of spatial um fluency. Uh, so yeah, the the possibilities of the disciplines kind of coming together around um, spatial discussions, spatial variables, spatial practices um, is I think hugely important now and involves movement on the part of many disciplines, but might I think be really rewarding to our design students like a lot, a very different kind of life with different kinds of people and, you know, so different from the professional hierarchy that's basically just put us in a cul-de-sac. No wonder the world doesn't understand what, what it is we do. And <clears throat> would it be possible that you give maybe a couple of examples of what you consider uh, some of these non-normative practices? Or let's say it doesn't have to be super specific, but maybe at which intersection they could lie. In the examples, a couple of examples I gave a minute ago about sort of um, making places, increasing access and mobility by changing the way people use um, transportation, not necessarily just the vehicle of transportation there that that lands you in between people who do technology people who are municipal leaders people who are uh politicians um social scientists uh you know many many things but the other example that i gave about uh kind of community economies now i think it's it seems really important especially in america well or 
around the world, but um, to be able to describe another kind of infrastructure. I mean, we know how to fund infrastructures of concrete and conduit and, you know, that kind of thing, but we don't, we are not maybe so good at describing the community infrastructures. And so that takes one to uh, partnerships with activists, with policymakers, um, with politicians, with with a number of people who are also in these kind of um, mediating positions. Um, I know when we've done studios, we did a studio a couple of years ago, which was sort of looking at the fat white middle of the U.S. And uh, because it was COVID time, we could get anybody to talk to us on Zoom. And it was much easier to bang on doors and and create these coalitions. And we had energy experts, tribal leaders, um, uh, farmers, farm activists, farm mediators, uh, people who made um, agrarian trusts, people who made community land trusts, and on and on and on. Um, they were all part of our uh, discussion. And I, I hoped then that that would be like a, a rehearsal for a completely different kind of of practice for those students. I don't know. Uh, I wish I could say that they all went out and, you know, left left New York and went to Oklahoma, you know, and started, but they didn't. Uh, if I'm honest, they didn't do it yet. But I think this, this example of what happened during COVID, it's super interesting because I don't know if you agree, but for me, it feels a little bit like the pendulum is already on its way back. So there was this moment that... Uh, It was almost like this window opened, this window of opportunity where certain things happened that you could actually see, okay, this could actually be that moment of change where for the first time there's a kind of almost, let's say, global similarity in inverted commas in terms of maybe particular personal human experience. Um, but now I would at least say in Europe, uh, it I mean, of course, nothing is back to normal, but um, the things that could have potentially been kind of positive repercussions, they have kind of equalized almost. I agree, yeah. I mean, luckily still, there is um, the possibility of, of of live streaming conferences and things like that so that we, so there's, uh, I think there are, forms of solidarity, political solidarity that that are remaining. I, ho I hope so. Um, and, but they, it does help that you can be part of conversations and coalitions remotely. In this scenario, Keller and also bringing back this notion of this, uh, let's say, um, the superpower of, of these superbooks. Uh, what do you think about let's say, bringing down things to scale and deal with these notions of municipalism uh, in which, uh, let's say, uh, we bring the terrain of action to the scale of the city rather than uh, planetary um, scale uh, components. Uh, uh, also, the notion of state right now is contested in some way also by the, uh, by the corporation themselves. Uh, Google, Facebook, you know, Twitter. And do you think that there is some real terrain of action to, let's say, for us architects enrolled in actions at the level of municipalities uh, in which our, our political agency can have maybe more impact than this, let's say, abstract uh, globality? Uh, I I know this is a this is a real struggle. I think it also has to do with some of the same habits of mind that we have, um, where you know, perfectly reasonable people will say, you know, look, there's a planetary crisis. This isn't the moment to like go work a little bit on your neighborhood. You know, like the, like some people say, like, no, we need like a new world order. We need to like use AI to like do, you know. Get, um, find the answer to this thing. I, I'm 
I think that is kind of like an impossible distance to make up between those two needs. And I think there's something somehow wrong with the thinking in a scalar way. So if all of our discussions of globality, of the global and so on, sometimes evoke ideas about the universal, the world order, the, you know, singular solution. Um, maybe the planetary is learning something more from like what Anna Singh was talking about when she talks about Apachiness, um, um, where things are multiplied, but they aren't multiplied in a scalar way. You know, they they are um, patchy, partial, um, and inconsistent, um, and that is most convincing to me. So it seems to me that there are many things about um, um, that that patchiness which. Um, uh, can multiply around the world, um, but uh, but not universally. <laughs> you know, that's it's. It seems like it's a mistaken habit of mind. That's just not the way the animal or plant or humans necessarily work. So. I think, you know, you are acting globally when you're acting locally and um, you are, um, it, it does seem also though that there's ways to index specific conditions around the world and start to build coalitions around them. You know, like, yes, it is this, it is my neighborhood, but that, uh, but what I might learn by building a community land trust in, in um, St. Paul, Minnesota, is incredibly useful to a community land trust in, um, in Puerto Rico. Uh, and uh, what one community land trust does in an informal settlement in Rio um, speaks to another in um, Mumbai. Um, so, so, you know, the, these very specific things also can share intelligence around the planet. This is super interesting. So then do you think, for example, that the, let's say, making possible of the sharing becomes almost a design project? Yeah. I, um, I mean, I, I tried to hint at this in a project called Many that was a um, I did it for the t 2018, I think, Biennale um, in Venice. Um, I mean, it, it's funny because you, you to, to hoist it up, it looks like you're making a, an online platform or something like that, as if that was going to be the redemptive thing, uh, the very thing I hate, you know, like, that a technology or a platform is going to be like this thing that solves everything. Um, but that I, what I, it was just one way of showing the possibilities of combination and coalition, uh, um, not in a digital network, but actually in a heavy network, a, a a spatial network of exchanges of needs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually, it, it wasn't meant to be a trick question. Uh, it actually reminded me because this morning when I was talking with Cesar about uh, something else, we were also talking about, you know, potentially today the most radical thing to be uh, uh, could be to know your neighbor, you know, to really know your neighbor. And um, I think... I mean, we're very strong believers in the emancipatory potential of physical gathering and what physical gathering in the context of, let's say, critical spatial practices could imply when thinking about the city as a space of many. Um, and in this regard, I was wondering what would you consider a spatial operating system for the city? I mean, you've written uh, about it, but I'm I'm just wondering, in this kind of current moment and also talking again about COVID and maybe, I mean, it's not the time yet to talk about post-COVID, but let's say 
now being in a period where we've already learned certain things from COVID, how do you think this may have an impact maybe in general, but maybe more so in terms of your thinking, like uh, how does it influence the way that you think about maybe an operating system for the city now? Well, I guess uh, in the same way that one would talk about a spectrum of evils and a spectrum of dangers, capitalism, fascism, whiteness, racism, uh, xenophobia, all those things. Um, I it, operating systems is plural, um, you know, like it's it, uh, and patchy and redundant, um, uh, overlapping, um, unnecessary, excessive, abundant, you know, like, so I don't uh, have, you know, an idea of an operating system. I just think there should be no singular dominant operating system, which is another reason why, you know, social media probably has, is a little bit too uh, dominant in its ability to organize. Yeah, so it's the redundancy. In all these things, I just keep saying, you know, it's the mix. It's the mix. That's, that's the important thing. And I mean, I was wondering, since you also talked about, let's say, the way in which you're trying to tell students about potential like non-normative forms of practice how do you manage and i'm also in a way asking this because i find it sometimes difficult myself uh, because i'm in a in a similar way let's say critical in terms of this non these non-normative practices and also uh, uh, trying to communicate this to the students um, but how do you manage to keep in a way optimistic or let's say translate a certain optimism to the students because i think it's a uh, it's not an easy time uh, to be in and i think this optimism is also very important so well i suppose you know one thing is you know it's personally exiting um a modern enlightenment framework and a mo modern enlightenment hierarchy and a profession that's been based on that. It's, it's finding ways to exit, um, whiteness. Uh, and that's whiteness that's practiced by people who are white and people who are non-white, but just whiteness in general, that the, a, a way of exiting that kind of stranglehold is attractive. Um, um, I'm not saying that it's easy to shift one's habit of mind, but it is, is attractive to be able to really rearrange your mind. And uh, the kind of habits of mind the, and the whiteness that attends it is like the you know, it's like the water that the fish can't see, you know. So being able to somehow really see that, to really see um, how destructive it is, to see all of its pat little habits, um, to still see all the ways in which we still really want the right answer and uh, want to feel comfortable and safe and intact, you know. Um, that's what whiteness always wants to feel. It's kind of like wants to take a break. It wants to get things to get back to normal, you know, like that, that to see the insidiousness of that and to leave it behind, to have other kinds of friends and love and life, you know, like capital and whiteness just don't get things that are alive, you know, like they don't even really understand things that are alive, um, that, you know, you, this is a world of abundance on the other side of that, where you plant one seed and you get 10 plants, you know, like capital can't even get that. Like it, do, it doesn't even make sense to a world made of math, you know, it's crazy. So, so there is love and abundance on the other side of these constraining habits of mind. I, I think that's one of the attractions. Totally. And I have to say, Marcus, that it sounds totally optimistic, really. It's, 
it's uh, a call to see that there are other, maybe other metrics that we are not taking in consideration. Also bring to my mind the most recent book by Paul Preciado, Diaspora Mundi, in, in which somehow he uh, tells us uh, that the multiplicity of lessons that we can uh, learn from those who doesn't fit into this heteronormative uh, wideness understanding of the world, let's say. And, and I have to say it's, it's full of celebration, of celebration of differences that uh, cannot or haven't been really commodified at that some point can bring this optimism and abundance that you uh, were mentioning, Keller. So for me, I, I will say this is a very optimistic uh, reflection. So thank you for mentioning that. You just listened to the seventh episode of Cultures of Assembly, a podcast and research trajectory of the new chair of urban regeneration at the University of Luxembourg. We would like to thank our guest, Kenna Insterling, This podcast series is a collective work. At the Chair of Urban Regeneration, we produce immersive research by exploring site-specific materials alongside publics and their narratives. We also share experiences by engaging into conversations with international researchers, artists, curators, politicians, economists and activists. The soundtrack was made by Ugne and Maria. Thank you for listening and stay alert.